Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life. We are convinced that the Bible is God's holy word, perfect and without error. Its perfection delivers what is good and beneficial for those who hear it and heed it. It is perfect for it leads us to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus. He is the bread of life. Let us seek him together through God's word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. At the end of Ephesians 5, we learn that the purpose of Christian marriage is to glorify Christ and his church by demonstrating Christ's power to unite in one a divergent group of people. The question is asked, how can Christ's power to unite into his body all people in the world be manifested if he can't unite one man and one woman in Christian marriage? Our marriages are to proclaim Christ's saving power. What that looks like and how that happens is what we consider today. Christian marriage is supposed to be an expression of the unity of two divergent interests and two people being drawn together in Christ, expressing their utter surrender to Him. And as that takes place, as the marriage is bound in that unity, no longer pursuing their own self-interest, God is glorified. So a little note here, what that means, and measure this against oftentimes the stuff you read and the concerns that rise up. And a lot of churches preach messages. None of the habit is just to preach messages on how to take care of your family and how to raise your kids and what to do to make sure that they don't become subject to the powers of this world. And you start cloistering your kids around you and you start going to churches only because you want to find a church that will minister to your family, etc. And that's not the purpose of your marriage. Christian marriages are not about the pursuit of the self-interest of your little group, your little home, your little community. It's about making known the work of Christ and making peace and unity among all people and bringing them into life through Jesus Christ and under His full headship. Notice here that, and this is not to be the consideration of the Christian father and mother, doing what is best for my family. It's not about John and Jane and how they raise their kids it's not about just pursuing domestic tranquility or finding strategies that will make for a good and happy home, although we should want and desire all those things, but chasing those things is kind of like chasing happiness. It will be elusive. Happiness comes when we surrender ourselves completely to God's agenda, and our homes become a place of glory to God when we surrender ourselves to His agenda, the exaltation of Jesus Christ and His redeeming work through His church. Not the church out there in order to meet my needs, but my family given to exalt its glory. And that's what's being expressed here. I'll try to give you an illustration of this. I'd like to tell you the story of Mohan. I'd like to describe to you all they're doing, but I can tell you this. They've got about 15 churches. They have about five church buildings, 16 prayer huts where people gather. They have about 40 homes where they're starting house groups in other parts of this community. This is all developed over a period of about 18 years. Prior to that, Mohan's parents arranged a marriage for him. His wife was from within his caste, but her family had gone to Burma. And during their time in Burma, they came under the influence of the gospel and they decided to become Christians. They moved back into his village and they hadn't really been educated in Christianity whatsoever. They just knew a little bit of it. And his wife didn't know enough that he married, enough to even share the gospel with him. But she knew to pray for him. And he would hear her praying to the door, and her prayer would be, Oh God, save my husband. Oh God, save my husband. She couldn't even tell him how to be saved. She couldn't tell him what made it preferable for him to follow the Christian's God than all the multi-million gods that he has in Hinduism. 
He eventually began looking for a job in Abu Dhabi. He was going to have to leave his wife for a period of time, but it was where he was going to be able to go to gain success. And he went to Mumbai and transitioned to try to get to Abu Dhabi, which is in the Middle East. And he was stuck there for 40 days. He was stuck in a room and he couldn't speak the language of the people. He didn't speak Hindi, so he didn't want to go out on the streets of Mumbai. So he just stayed in his room until his brother-in-law, who spoke Hindi, would come home at night from the end of work and then they'd go out together. And he was bored. And the only thing that was available in the home to read was a Bible. And he began reading the Bible. He read it all the way through. And as he was reading it through, he was reminded of the God in his village. The God in his village is named Palami. Ptolemy was represented by a tree at the center of the village, and there was a prophetess who spoke for this tree. She would come and give the people in the village a message, his father, all the other farmers in the village, and the message would be from this God on a regular basis, feed me blood, feed me blood, feed me blood. So they would gather around and they would sacrifice chickens and they would sacrifice goats and they would pour the blood at the foot of this tree to feed the belly of this God. He's reading through his Bible. He starts in the Old Testament. He's getting an understanding of the glory and the majesty of this creator God who made all things. It's compelling to him. He feels that he should worship him alone. He comes in the New Testament and he sees in John that this God became flesh and came to earth. And this God shed his blood for his sins. In a moment when he comes to the passage, it flashes upon his mind The God of my village wants blood to feed its belly. The God of all creation sheds His blood to cleanse me of my sins. This produces a profound sense of repentance in his heart. And he weeps before God and he asks God to forgive him. And he tells God he will worship and follow him alone. Only forgive me and cleanse me with your blood. It's a very evangelical message. He's never heard an evangelical message in his life. As he's praying, the next thing he thinks is, this God has his foot in Mumbai and he's speaking to me. If this God has his foot in Mumbai, he also has his foot in Abu Dhabi. God, if you have your foot in Abu Dhabi, you can bring me to Abu Dhabi. Please, get me to Abu Dhabi. That day, his brother-in-law comes home and says, hey, look, I got good news. You've got a job in Abu Dhabi and they've sent, they've sent a, a, a ticket for you to fly. You're flying out tonight. He flies to Abu Dhabi. When he gets to Abu Dhabi, he begins still reading his Bible. The next thing he does is he begins praying for his brothers and sisters and his family and his village that they'll come to know the Savior who saved them. While he's praying, he's working to make money to educate his brothers and sisters at universities. So he takes the money he's making, he educates his brothers and sisters. Over time, his first brother he educates becomes a Christian, gets his education at a seminary. His brother now lives in Abu Dhabi. He's planted eight churches in Abu Dhabi. He ultimately converts all of his brothers and sisters. Each one of them become very successful. They live in Canada. They live in Great Britain. They've got great jobs as engineers and as professionals. At the end of all that time, they decided they would take their brother back from Abu Dhabi and let him get educated. He goes to a Bible college. Then he moves back to his village because he wants to lead people to Christ. He starts a Bible study in his parents' home In that small group of people that he's teaching the word of, Hindus come to listen. Only a few, only a handful, but one of them is the prophetess of Ptolemy. Within a few months, she gives her life to Christ. Shortly after that, she dies, but she gives her land on which the tree lies to him to build a church in his village. He builds a church there, 
the village comes to Christ, that's where the work began. Now, if you go there, you'll see all these church buildings that are being built, and they've got a school for 400 students that are mostly Hindu kids, and that's their access to the Hindu population. They have an orphanage. They're taking care of 160 widows. They're reaching to every caste of the 13 castes that are there. He's got a brother, like I've said, working in Abu Dhabi, and he's ministering to people outside of their tribal groups, people in India. The money for all this comes from his siblings. They have developed through their work money they keep pouring in to support his mission there. There is a family that has the idea and concept of what the Christian home and family is all about. Giving themselves utterly for the proclamation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and a celebration of the unity of His body through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to. That's what God calls us to. That's the purpose of the Christian marriage. What does that look like when it's expressed in our individual lives, in our marriages? What does it look like in a Christian marriage? What's the expression of people of opposing self-interest uniting to glorify Christ and His church through their marriage? Well, for the husband, it looks like him giving himself to set forth his wife as the standard of beauty. This is one of the things we told our kids as they were standing before to get married. To the husband, we said, let your wives be your standard of beauty. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself as a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. I don't know if you've ever read the Song of Solomon. It's kind of a difficult book to read. It's kind of difficult to know who's speaking and what it's about. But if you go back and you study the earliest commentaries from the church in the first hundred years of the church, or even if you go back and find out what the Jewish rabbinics taught about this book, they thought it was an allegory. Even if it may be an expression of human love, they thought the greater meaning was an allegory of God's love either for the people of Israel or the church saw it as God's love for His church. That's what they saw it as. If you open it up in the very first chapter, you see the woman speaking to her lover in the chapter, and she says this to him. She says, Look not upon me because I'm black. Because the sun has darkened me, look not upon me. My mother's children, that is my brothers, were angry with me and they made me be keepers in their vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. She feels unworthy of the eye of his love being upon her, but her lover responds and says he sees something else entirely. He answers and says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes and go on. You see, he likes other parts of her body as well. You know, he's pretty excited by what he sees. He thinks he's beautiful. He praises her for his beauty and it will go on and on throughout the text. What would the allegory be here? It will be this. We as individuals were darkened by sin. We had failed to maintain good fruit from the vineyards of our lives. But still, Christ saw in us a glory and a beauty that He delighted to bring out from us and He delighted to lay upon us. And He redeemed us to set us forth as something glorious unto Himself and therefore before all of His creation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 speaks of this. It's an incredible statement. It speaks of the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance in the saints. That means Jesus finds something mesmerizing, something glorious, something wonderful in the spiritual bride that He's redeemed. 
He's captivated in this sense by us. He redeemed us to set forward this glory, not only to himself, but the world around. That a man should find his wife beautiful is not hard to believe he should. That Christ found us so is hard to believe. But he did and he does. And now he says to husbands, live to see and to guard and to protect and to preserve the beauty of your wife. He's not merely talking about her physical outward beauty. He's talking about all her underlying attributes and abilities and attitudes. 1 Peter 3, 4 speaks of the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Husbands, you're to learn to identify what makes your wife shine and you're to live to draw that out into the light. Christ not only presented the church to himself, but in redeeming it, he's exalted the church in such a way that she can be seen as glorious throughout the ages. Ephesians 3, verses 10 through 11 says this, His intent was that now through the church that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ has redeemed us and in order to put us forth before the powers of this age so that we might be on display as an expression of a glorious thing. Husbands, we want our wives to shine as expressions and standards of beauty to all those around. We are to minister to her the grace of our God in a self-sacrificing manner so that she may shine. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. If you'd like a copy of this broadcast, call us at 208-331-4096. Until the next time, God bless you.